Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you tonight. Uh, my name is uh, Chris Bennett, and I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, we are so happy that you joined us for uh, the beginning of the Easter season. Um, today's known as Ash Wednesday, and I was talking to somebody today, and they were telling me that they told their kid, make sure that, you, you know, when you see the person walking out of Kroger that has the ash in their head, don't, don't, make a, don't make a scene. Don't ask about that. Ask me once we're in the car. And um, for those of you who may not be aware of that tradition, it simply marks uh, the fact that we are all from dust. God made us from dust, and we're going to return to the dust one day. Some traditions have observed this for many, many years, and others haven't. Others it may seem a little strange, but it's simply a recognition of our mortality, or really what the scriptures teach, that we have corrupt bodies, bodies that will die one day. And yet, for those of us who are in Jesus... In the same way that we bear the curse of sin that goes all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, for those of us who are in Christ, we also bear the blessing of the resurrection. That our hope, our ultimate hope one day, is that we will be resurrected just like our Messiah was resurrected. And just to give us, uh, just to help us understand what resurrection is, to remind us, because oftentimes as Western Christians, especially in the South and the Bible Belt, we think that our ultimate future is going to be floating around and dis- disembodied, playing invisible harps, jumping from cloud to cloud and glee as we worship Jesus. And um, uh, that sounds okay, but that's not what the Bible teaches about what our future is. The Bible teaches that we are going to be resurrected with literal physical bodies. Our bodies will be resurrected and we will be perfected in Christ and we will live with Christ in a new creation forever. So we will get to swim in oceans. We'll get to go to the beach one day. I, I think I think that's an implication of this in Scripture. We're going to get to like play football. We're going to get to eat great food. We're going to get to be together and enjoy one another. And what's amazing is, is we will not be in any sense of the word impaired by sin, by suffering and tragedy, by all the things that make this world hard. The, uh, Solomon, uh, one of the writers in our Scripture, talks about life under the sun and how life under the sun is really, really difficult. But one day, we won't be living under the sun as we know it now. We'll be living in a whole, whole, a wholly recreated cosmos. And those of us who follow Jesus and love Jesus and are loyal to Jesus, we will receive that reward. And so when we sing about why we get Jesus' reward, I can't give an answer. It's really mind-blowing. It's really mind-blowing. And so this is what we're talking about. When we talk about Easter, we're not just marking something that happened 2,000 years ago. Something that happened 2,000 years ago set the stage for all of our future for thousands and thousands and thousands of years to come that we who believe in Jesus will live eternally in his love with new bodies in a new world in the glow of the face of Yahweh himself. That is the answer to all the world's troubles. This is why we have a thing called Ash Wednesday. So I'm going to take a few minutes Hopefully encourage your hearts tonight. Um, We're in a series right now on the book of Romans. And we're not going verse by verse through the book of Romans, and we're not even hitting every section in the book of Romans. But through the season of Lent, uh, we are going to be looking specifically at the texts in Romans that remind us of our depravity because of our sin. The point of Lent uh, on the church calendar is that we would 
become more aware of our brokenness as followers of Jesus. And for those of us who don't follow Jesus, we would become aware of our brokenness and turn to Jesus. Um, When I say brokenness, what I mean is um, sin, our hurt, the pain that we have borne that was inflicted upon us, the pain that we inflict on others, and the way that we live out of our pain and our sin that offends God. But luckily, thankfully, God loves us, and he sent his son Jesus to rescue us, and so we would turn to him. Um, I want to read just out of uh, Romans chapter 3 tonight, starting in verse 9. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Paul says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? And if you were here on Sunday, you'll remember when I went through Romans chapter 1, the first part of Romans chapter 1, Paul is writing to a group of house churches, more than likely, in the city of Rome. These are some very impoverished people. These are people who live under the shadow of imperial Roman, uh, of imperial Rome. These are people who, the very words that Paul uses in the first seven verses of the book of Romans could cause them to be thrown in prison and suffer capital punishment. And Paul writes to these people who are living in the shadow of Rome, under the nose of Caesar, and he is calling them to love one another because this is a church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles who don't get along very well. There's racial tension in this church. And Paul wants to use this church to be a launching pad to take the gospel into Western Europe, specifically Spain, so we can take the gospel further and further and further. And he needs a good launching pad that's founded and grounded in the gospel. And so he's sort of hitting two birds with one stone as we read through Paul's words. He's dealing with the the people at Rome, their sin toward one another, their racial tension, their bigotry, their dislike of one another, the way that they mistreat one another. But he's also dealing with the big cosmic picture, 30,000 feet in the air, of how God looks at the whole world and how God wants to change the reality of our world. And so he says, what then? Are we Jews better off? He just really gave it to the Gentiles really hard in the previous section. And so the Jews might think, well, we're better than the Gentiles. And Paul says, no, 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 not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. And at this point, Paul quotes a number of Old Testament scriptures, uh, Psalm 5, Um, 14, Psalm 10, Psalm 36, Psalm 140, Isaiah 59. There's a number of verses that, that Paul puts together in this text as he assesses the spiritual condition of all of us. The spiritual condition of all of us as God sees us. Now, this is really big because he's talking, he's directed his attention to the Jews the people who were uniquely chosen by God to be God's representative people on the earth to bring about salvation and renewal to the world. And Paul turns his attention to the Jews and he puts the Jews and the Gentiles together. In the Jewish mind, there were two kinds of people back then, Jews and non-Jews. That's what Gentile means. And so he puts them all together and this is how he says God looks at all of us. 
This is how God assesses all of humanity. And he brings up all of these verses from the Old Covenant. He says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one does. Even the Jews who have the law. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There are no seekers, Paul says. No one wants him. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. They have wasted the humanity that God has given them. They are image bearers of God, and they have just thrown it all to the wind. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I'll be, I'll be honest, going into this text tonight, I didn't feel necessarily fear, but I did, I did feel some trepidation because we live in a world that constantly sends us signals of how wonderful we are. Of how our truth is a beautiful truth. And I'm not going to take a fundamentalist route and beat you up tonight, but I am going to say this, that these words alone are a prophetic utterance against the signals that we hear every day that are lies, my friends. We are all desperately broken and in need of a Savior to redeem us. We are desperately broken, desperately broken. Just look around you. Every one of us in this room, every person on planet Earth has reaped destruction and sown destruction in our relationships, in, uh, in our spheres of influence. We are sinners. It is so clear. Yet for some reason, the world does not want us to believe how broken we really are. We need to embrace this. We need to see ourselves this way. Now keep in mind, Paul's not talking to non-believing people here. He's talking to believing people. He's talking to people who have turned to Jesus. He's talking to people who have bravely embraced the gospel and they live in a world where they are looked down on as freaks. These people have embraced the gospel and Paul wants them to think real, real hard about the condition of their hearts. Think about this. Ponder this. Mull this over. Feel this. Feel this. And so right now, maybe you're feeling anger because this offends you. That's really good. I'm glad you're feeling something. Maybe you're feeling sorrow. Maybe you don't feel anything because church has been a part of your life as long as you can remember. And all this stuff just sort of falls on deaf ears. I want to ask you to open your heart to to this tonight, to God's word. Try to feel what Paul is telling us as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says this about all of us. Their throat is an open grave. It's an open grave. I don't know about you, but I look back over so many times. I opened my mouth and death came out. I feel when I read this, this is the one part of this that I really, really feel. I've, I've seen so many times in my past and, and there'll be more times. I'm, 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 I'm afraid I'm still broken. I'm still waiting for my resurrection in Christ. But um, I know what it's like. I know what this is like for, to open my mouth and, and death comes out. I feel that. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. They use their tongues. We use our tongues to manipulate, to control, to maneuver, to make things happen in our favor. We do these types of things. The venom of asps is under their lips. The venom of snakes is in our mouth. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Curses and bitterness. And you're like, man, would you let up, Paul? Like, I'm not that bad. But he wants us to feel this. He wants us, our assessment of ourselves, which is, hey, pretty good. I mean well. My intentions are right. Come on, God, I go to church. I pray. I have devotions with my family. Paul wants our standard of righteousness to rub up against God's standard of righteousness. And he wants us to feel the sting of how God looks at us. He wants us to know the truth about ourselves. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. A theologian named N.T. Wright said this. He said, God's people, just like the pagan nations, have failed to honor him as God or show him proper reverence. And their lives have consequently failed to reflect his goodness, his wisdom, and his love. And I want to zoom in on that for a moment because if I say amen here and, and we take communion, I don't think that's much of a, of a resolve. That I don't think that's what God wants us to have here. We are called to reflect God, to bear his image. And God is loving and merciful and kind. But in our brokenness, we have rejected God's ways. This is why you can live in a city like Memphis that has somewhere between an estimated amount of between two and 3,000 churches in this city. Where anywhere between five and 600,000 people go to churches every single Sunday. And yet, if you've ever driven on I-240, you know there's a lot of sin out there. There's a lot of meanness out there. There's a lot of hurt out there. Everywhere we go, every sphere we get into, we all feel the pain of meanness and unkindness. We feel it everywhere we go. We are broken. And when I look at this text, even though Paul is aiming at the Jews right now in this text, in his context, I see this aimed at us as the church. Do we see our own brokenness and will we repent for the way that we continue to defile the name of God in our culture? Will we repent of that? Will we repent? In verse 19, the scriptures say this. Now we know that whatever the law says, and when he refers to the law of Moses here that the Jews grew up under, the law, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now it's interesting because earlier he talked about being under sin, the power of sin. And the Jews who are under the law yet are still under the power of sin. Having have, knowing what God wants and having the rule book doesn't fix you. We need something else to intervene in our lives and change us and heal us. And this is what Paul's leaning into right now. Just a few verses left. It speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable before God. The whole world. Again, in our world, we don't like this kind of talk. We don't like a God who judges. We like a God who is only love, who is only mercy. But this, 
Paul wants everyone to hear that God, this God of love, is also a God of righteousness. And because of that, he must judge. And he loves us so much, he wants us to understand what we are in his eyes. He doesn't want us to be self-deceived. He doesn't want that. So every, he says, so that every mouth may be stopped. Back in those days, whenever they had a, 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 a court of law in both the Jewish and the Greek world, whenever someone was done defending him or herself in a, in a law court, they would cover their mouth. And if they got to a point where they wouldn't cover their mouth and the court was done hearing them talk, somebody from the court, their, their, uh, their uh, bailiff, so to speak, would come and slap them in the face and shut their mouth. They did this to Jesus. They did this to Jesus. They did this to the Apostle Paul. They would slap their face and basically say, shut up, you're done defending yourself. We can't hear anymore. We can't tolerate what you're saying. Quiet. This is what Paul is saying here. The law slaps every person on planet earth in the face and says, you have no righteousness of your own to appeal to. None. You've got no merit of your own to stand on. None. In God's eyes, every person alive who has ever lived and ever will live is guilty before God. Now remember, this was a text that was read out loud in the church. This isn't the book of Isaiah This isn't Nehemiah who like pulled people's hair out and called curses on them. This is New Testament. This is New Testament. This is a group of probably less than 100 people who were gathered in various homes in Rome, in districts of Rome, in the poor districts of Rome. And they would read this entire letter, all 16 chapters in one sitting in front of a bunch of people who most, most of whom were illiterate. This is how they did church back then. He read this out loud. They would read this out loud. And so, the whole earth, everybody's mouth may be stopped. The whole world held accountable before God. For by works of law, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Last three verses, last four verses. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law both how we view God in his goodness and also the way that we can become righteous. The way that we can become righteous has been manifested apart from the rule book. There's a way that we can become righteous that is not based on any merit of our own, based on no good work of our own. There is a way that we can stand before God and rather than experiencing that assessment, that you have the venom of snakes in your mouth and you run to deception and bloodshed, there is a righteousness that is available to every single one of us that comes based on no merit of ours alone, but based on something else. There is a way that we can experience life in such a way that when God looks at us, he does not see people who have snake mouths, but he sees his beautiful loving children. There is a way we can experience that righteousness. And he explains that here. He said, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe. Now, briefly, 
I've got to help us understand what believe means. Because in our culture, believe means believe. Just think about a guy that had a beard, had a crown of thorns, that lived 2,000 years ago. Think about that. Think real hard about that. Now pray this prayer after me. And if you pray this prayer after me, then everything's good. That is not what Paul means by believe here. What Paul means by believe here, we talked about this on Sunday. We'll keep teasing this out on our successive Sundays to come. Believing obedience. Belief can only come from the conviction that God's assessment of me really is true. I am broken beyond fixing. There's nothing that I can do to correct the sin and the darkness that's in my life. There's nothing I can do. I need a savior to enter into my life and start a salvaging project that will last as long as I live and until Jesus returns. And there's no person on earth that can do that. Your favorite preacher can't do that. Your favorite podcast can't do that. Uh, uh, Getting married won't do that. Having kids won't do that. Having a business won't do that. Making a lot of money won't do that. Nothing will do that except the person of Jesus. And so when we talk about believing on Jesus, this is what Paul had in his mind. Not just praying a prayer. I'm not saying praying a prayer is bogus or not good. We should pray a prayer and ask Jesus to lead us and be our Lord. But we should be praying the sinner's prayer every day, not just once back when I was in fifth grade. We should be every day asking Jesus, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. For thine is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. Amen and amen. Now let's get busy going about my day. This is what it means to follow Jesus. There's this um, um, wonderful woman. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. That's really her name. And she is a woman who was at one time a professor at Syracuse University, English professor, tenured professor. She was also a practicing and by her own admission, a very militant lesbian. And she led the LGBT community on campus and in her book um, that, she, that she wrote, and I can't remember the name of it right now, I think The Confessions of an Unlikely Convert, she talks about the relationship that she developed with a pastor, a local pastor, who began to invite her to his table and lead her down the path of the gospel and the transformation that took place in her life. Um, her words are some of the most poignant words on repentance and transformation that I've ever heard. It's incredible. And I just want to read you a few of her comments that she said in her book about, what it, about repenting. When she was in the throes of facing God's assessment of her life, not just because she was sexually broken, but because she did not love Jesus. That's the greatest sin of all, not loving Jesus, not following Jesus. It's not just about a, this isn't just an LGBT thing. This is more than the LGBTQ. This is more than that. This drills down deep into our broken condition as people and how much we need Jesus. And so she says these words. How do you repent for a sin that doesn't feel like a sin? She said, I learned the first rule of repentance. That repentance requires greater intimacy with God than our own sin. That's really heavy if you think about it. Repentance requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin. 
how much greater? About the size of a mustard seed. Repentance requires that we draw near to Jesus no matter what. A lot of people are, uh, a bunch of people have asked me, and I've asked a few, so what are you fasting during Lent? If Lent is the reason we're fasting, we're fasting for the wrong reason. If we're giving up something because it's the Lenten season, we're giving up something for the wrong reason. What we're learning to do as followers of Jesus is to allow Jesus to take our idols away from us and to love him and see him as our greatest treasure. I've got a really good friend and a mentor who always reminds me when I'm struggling the most. He says, but Chris, you get Jesus. When God asks for one of my idols, he always says, Chris, you get Jesus. You get Jesus. And he doesn't say that like a, a preacher who's never had to give up or lose anything. There's a sense of sorrow in his words. He's been through stuff. But he says, with his own life experience, you get Jesus. You get him. Repentance requires that we draw near to Jesus no matter what. And sometimes we have to crawl there on our hands and knees. She says this, repentance is an intimate affair. And for many of us, intimacy with anything is a terrifying prospect. Every believer had to, at some point in life, take the step that I was taking. No matter how big or overwhelming or intimidating your idolatry is in your life, no matter what it is, we all had to take the step that she describes here. And she says it this way, giving up the right to myself. Giving up the right to myself. Taking up his cross and following Jesus. Giving up the right to myself. Giving up the right to myself. I am his. Paul opens the letter to the Romans by saying, I am a slave of Jesus. He said, I am called to belong to him. And you're called to belong to him too. We're called to this. And so I'm gonna, we're going to close the service tonight with some music. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. We're going to have some scripture that's going to be read. But what I want us to do is this. Rather than make our way, we have no communion stations in the back. But rather, I'm going to say, say a prayer. When I say amen, these communion stations will be available to all of you. But I would ask you that before you come up, you think about the condition of your heart. Think about the idols in your life, the things in your life that you just can't live without, that Jesus is saying, would you just trust me with that? Would you just give that to me? Because if you give that to me, I can give you myself in a way that will transform you. I want you to think about the condition of your heart. And I want you to maybe pray a prayer to yourself, marking the beginning of Lent, that you belong to Jesus. And that over these next 40 days or so, as we build up to Easter, as we build up to that time where we remember Jesus' glorious resurrection and our future resurrection, let's get our hearts ready. Let's 
compare our hearts and the way we look at ourselves to what the gospel says about us. And let's begin to repent. And after you've spent a little bit of time, a little intimacy with Jesus, at any time, just quietly come to the front, take a cup, take a cracker, return to your seat. We're going to have some scripture that's being read throughout this process. And then at the end, we're going to sing a glorious song, reminding ourselves of who we are in Jesus as believers. And then we'll dismiss you. Lord, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. Father, I am uh, aware that if I was preaching this sermon in a poor, impoverished town in Africa or in Asia, the simplistic faith of the people who were listening would cause them to resound, give me resounding amens and praise gods and hallelujahs. Yet in the West, we don't like to be told what's broken about us. We hate that. We don't like to know how we're messed up. We suppress that. We ignore that. And yet the more we push it down in our lives and suppress it, the more anxiety and brokenness it gives us. And I pray that all of us, by the power of the Spirit, would have the courage to look at ourselves the way God looks at us. That those of us who are here tonight who do not know you and aren't following you would feel the weight of the way God looks at us. We have mouths like snakes. We have feet that run to the shedding of blood. We are guilty. And I pray that we would seek you for forgiveness because you are willing to give it to us immediately. And for those of us who are here who are in the church, I pray, Jesus, that you would continue to spawn a life of repentance, of laying ourselves down at your feet. Our hearts often drift away from you. Bring us back, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Take a few moments and meditate on these words. Romans 3, 21, 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a probation for his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might just be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans six thirteen. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God 
as those have, who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Psalm 34, 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will ever be condemned. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. Psalm 40, 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. First John 1, 7 through 10. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with the one with one another and with the blood of Jesus Christ his son he cleanses us from all sin if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth it is not in us if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. John three sixteen seventeen. 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since God, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle you with clean water and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given me, given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the Father are one. Luke twenty-two, nineteen through 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, sang, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Isaiah 60, 19 through 20. The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun shall shine, shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Revelation 20, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. 
For these words are trustworthy and true.